Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. My name is Nicola Torbett, and this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. We've aimed this podcast at white listeners like me who want to dismantle white supremacy following the leadership of people of color and also taking full responsibility for our own part of the work. Of course, anyone and everyone can listen, and we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and those from diverse faith traditions. And we also acknowledge that white folks have extra work to do, especially white Christian folks, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. So this podcast is specifically about using Christian religious texts to help us in the work of resisting whiteness and the other systems bound up in it wherever we find them, including in our own Christian tradition. During this season of so-called ordinary time, although we have been wryly commenting that this time is hardly ordinary, what with the pandemic and the uprising and now this fascist backlash with federal agents dispatched to Portland to quell protests. During these extraordinary times, we are following the Hebrew scripture readings as they trace the origin stories of a people, the people of Israel, from Abraham all the way through the exodus from Egypt and into the promised land. It's a story that arcs toward freedom, a story about God's ardent desire for a people a community of people who can mediate God's love and tenderness to the world. It's also a story about how we hurt each other and ourselves, how those hurts get inscribed in our bodies and minds, and it seems even in our DNA, as trauma, and how that trauma gets passed down generation to generation in ways that keep sabotaging or at least delaying God's dream. These stories raise all kinds of questions about the nature of freedom, and our series hopes to dwell in those questions in ways that are fruitful for present-day liberation struggles. There are a few things that are shaping how I approach this week's podcast. I'm turning 50 in just a few days, so I've been thinking a lot about where I've been and where I'm headed, taking stock in a way. I've been looking at the traumas I've sustained and the ways I have, knowingly or not, passed that harm along to others. In a heavily psychologized culture like this one, we typically think of trauma as a personal problem that happens to individuals, or at most to families. But of course, none of us live separate from our social environment, which is all shot through with the traumas of war, incarceration, wealth extraction, the social divisions inscribed by white supremacy. I've been grieving the ways that trauma has limited my life and my relationships. The grief feels necessary for whatever comes next. It's not the end point. My grief and I were on the way somewhere, but it seems I can't get there without taking my grief with me. I've wanted my 49th year to be a sort of jubilee year, in which I release the captives, so to speak, the people I haven't yet forgiven for things that happened almost literally a lifetime ago. 
And that necessarily also means forgiving myself and coming into deeper levels of self-acceptance. In addition to all this milestone birthday stock taking, I've also been immersed these past few weeks in the disability justice movements for reasons both personal and communal. Part of turning 50, as you may or may not know, is reckoning with a body that just can't do all the things it used to be able to do. And as you also may or may not have heard, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I got to be part of planning a worship service celebrating that victory and acknowledging the enormous contributions currently being made to our collective liberation by the disability justice movement, and especially by disabled people of color. So all of this has me thinking about bodies. Part of the gift the disability justice movement gives us is that it reminds us that we have bodies, these tender, vulnerable miracles that sustain our lives so long as we are on the earth in this form. There is so much in this frenetic and brutal world that takes us out of our bodies, that encourages us to forget them or to think of them just as tools that we can use and abuse in order to get things done, to be productive, to contribute to the capitalist project of generating wealth. As my friend Carol Robison says, as working class people, we learned very early on that no matter what happened, you had to tape your leg back on and get back to work. So many of our bodies have been hurt, traumatized or maimed, by the forces of oppression we confront day after day, both out in the world and here inside us where we have internalized them. By the way, did you catch that story in the Washington Post about the eight people who were partially blinded by police projectiles on May 30th of this year, one day alone in the wake of George Floyd's murder? I'm gonna let that sit there for a moment. Eight people lost their vision in one day at the hands of police. And that is in addition to the people who weren't protesting and who just in the course of living their lives that day were demeaned, threatened, traumatized, beaten, and injured by those who maintain our social order, all in one day's time. So I've got trauma and bodies and midlife and relational healing on my mind this morning as I turn to this passage, which is, as you'll see, a very embodied story about midlife. Let's turn now to Genesis 32, verses 23 through 31. Today we pick up the story of Jacob that we've been following for a few weeks now. Jacob is now at midlife, and as we'll see, he's about to do some reckoning of his own. In, a, in the run-up to this week's passage, Jacob and his family, meaning his two wives, Leah and Rachel, 
and their womb slaves, Zilpah and Bilhah. Womb slave is the term Will Gaffney uses for them in her book, Womanist Midrash. And all the children Jacob has fathered with all of them, they're all on the move. They are traveling back to the land of Jacob's childhood, the land of his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham before him, the land promised to their descendants by God. After Jacob has spent many years living and working elsewhere, decades have passed now, and God has ostensibly told Jacob that now is the time to go back to the land of his people. Now, you might recall that Jacob didn't leave his father's land on the best of terms. In fact, he had to flee that place after he bargained his brother Esau out of the bulk of his inheritance and then tricked their father into giving him, Jacob, the blessing meant for Esau, who then, maybe understandably, became enraged and threatened to kill Jacob. That's why it doesn't exactly feel like good news when Jacob hears that Esau, after many years of estrangement, is coming out to meet him as they cross back into the region. And oh, by the way, Esau has 400 men with him. As you might imagine, Jacob is feeling pretty vulnerable. In this week's reading, we catch up with Jacob after he has sent the women and children across the river ahead of him, and he is spending the night alone on this side of the river. Here's what the scripture says. Again, this is Genesis 32, verses 23 through 31. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob wrestles for his blessing. He wrestles, and it's never made clear who his opponent is. Is it some anonymous assailant, an opportunist, who was waiting to ambush any vulnerable traveler who lingered alone? Was it Esau, or Jacob's anxious, imagined version of him? Was it an angel, or was it God? Today, my reading of this wrestling match, such a visceral passage, is colored by some photos I've been looking at of a direct action known as the Capitol Crawl. Do you remember that one? It was March 12, 1990, and thousands of people with disabilities had converged on Washington, D.C. to insist on the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act which would outlaw discrimination based on physical or mental disabilities and ensure access to public buildings. When the march reached the Capitol building, people abandoned their wheelchairs, crutches, and power scooters and began to crawl up those 83 gleaming white stairs to reach their government. 
there are some incredible photos of this action, including one of eight-year-old Jennifer Keelan, who declared, I'll take all night if I have to, as she used her arms to pull herself up one step at a time. The ADA was signed into law four months later. Jennifer and the other participants in the Capitol crawl wrestled for their blessing, for access to the promises that are supposed to be available to all Americans. There's a way in which people who are targeted for oppression are always wrestling for their blessing. There is a way that disabled, BIPOC, queer, and poor people are always having to fight for what should be their birthright, the right to live unharmed, to love and be loved, to cultivate a relationship with the land and all the creatures in it. And so in some ways, it feels fitting that Jacob's assailant is unidentified and unidentifiable. The assailant is the shadowy personification of a system that absolutely prefers to remain invisible and to attack under cover of night. One other thing about that Capitol crawl, the people in the photos of that historic day are predominantly white. Some of that may be a result of media bias in whose photos got recorded. Some was certainly about the lack of relationship between white disabled community and communities of color. And some of it was that those promises, the blessing that they were wrestling for, was already steeped in white supremacy. The provisions of the ADA will never extend to undocumented people with disabilities. Black and brown people who qualify under the ADA are, less, are still less likely to receive accommodations and vastly more likely to experience violence by police if they try to advocate for them. The ways that we have conceived of the blessing itself is limited by the boundaries of citizenship and the realities of white supremacy. I feel this limitation in these founding texts that we're reading together, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is, as Jean Jeffress pointed out a couple weeks ago, a tension in the text between what God is doing in trying to bless the world through a people who will embody the love of God to the world and the nation-building project that the writers of these texts were about. Nation-building with its borders and exclusivity, is always a violent project. We dream too small a blessing. So I imagine Jacob's assailant to be the systems of oppression that limit our ability to understand and live into God's great dream. I also think that assailant was part of Jacob himself, and those two ideas are not contradictory. The systems we are fighting outside ourselves have also taken up residence within our own psyches. My friend, Reverend Lenise Pinkard, often says, the plantation is within us. And that is true no matter what the relationship our ancestors had to it. It shows up differently according to where we're positioned, but you better believe the plantation is there. My sense is that two aspects of Jacob are wrestling themselves in this passage. On the one hand, Jacob the con man, who outwitted the unjust birthright system and is always trying to pull something off, and is still trying to figure out some way to prevail against his brother. 
and on the other hand, the Jacob created by God to found an alternative people who operated on an alternative value system to the imperial one of extraction, violence, and control. Actually, I'm going to backtrack for a minute to the text we had a couple of weeks ago, where Jacob dreams about the stairway to heaven, with the angels going up and down, up and down. I've been really taken by Rabbi Aviva Thorn. Zornberg's, Aviva Zornberg's take on that dream, that heaven and earth in the dream are two views that Jacob has of himself, that on the one hand, he's a genius who has managed to abscond with his brother's inheritance and blessing, and on the other hand, he's a thief and a liar who tricked his father and brother and now must run for his life. The latter, the stairway, is Jacob himself moving up and down between these conflicting opinions of himself. And it's into this somewhat self-absorbed obsessing that God moves in order to give Jacob a blessing, not because Jacob necessarily deserves it, but because that is who God is and what God does. God is in the blessing business. I feel as if Today's nighttime encounter is an echo or a bookend with that nighttime encounter. In the first, Jacob is leaving his father's land, and in this one, he's returning to it, which means finally facing the consequences of the harm he has committed in his own narrow self-interest. I suspect that Jacob feels as if he's wrestling with Esau, imagines that he's wrestling with Esau, struggling for his very life, but that he is really wrestling with himself, with his own sense of guilt and shame at what he did to his own twin brother. And this feels timely for the moment we're in. I think wrestling is a necessary part of this road to freedom. We who are white Americans are in a time of wrestling with what we have done, what our ancestors have done, what we have been a part of and benefited from. And as I read this text in this moment, I feel as if part of what God is saying is, yes, go ahead and wrestle. You need to wrestle. Sometimes, honestly, it's not clear who is going to win this fight between white people and our own consciences. White supremacist and white nationalist activity is definitely on the rise, even here in the Bay Area, which is known as such a progressive bubble. Nooses have been found tied to trees around Lake Merritt, which is a traditional gathering spot for the Black community. And then, a few days later, someone hung an effigy. At least one prominent Black activist has had 88 written in the dust on her car, 88 as code for HH or Heil Hitler. Someone has been spray-painting homes and cars of Black families with the slogan, All Lives Matter. Much as I want to imagine that those people are separate from me and far from my progressive community, I don't get to separate myself out from them. That is not the direction of freedom. We have to wrestle with this viciousness in ourselves and in our people. And honestly, I've been doing my own wrestling lately. I've been digging deeper into my ancestry in this country. Or no, actually, that's not right. One of my housemates, another white person and a dear friend and comrade, has been digging into my ancestry. And you all, it's not pretty. 
And I find myself, when she tries to tell me about what she's finding, wanting to shut down or change the subject or get very busy with something else. It's making me so, so uncomfortable. Wrestling. In his book, My Grandmother's Hands and elsewhere, Resma Menachem urges white people to work on gradually increasing our tolerance for the discomfort involved in this wrestling. Tada Hozumi has written about privilege as a form of dissociation, a coping strategy that white people have developed in order not to have to feel discomfort or pain. We can always leave the conversation, and far too often we do. So this wrestling feels important. It feels like a necessary way station on the route to freedom for Jacob, soon to be renamed Israel, and for us. And speaking of that renaming, let's talk about that, shall we? What's in a name? Juliet agonizes in Romeo and Juliet, but we know actually that there's a whole lot of power in a name. What we call something shapes how we think of it. There's a great power in the opportunity to name things because naming gives something shape. In a sense, naming is creation. By naming something, you render it an identifiable thing that can be noticed and regarded you pluck it out from the interconnected universe and make it something in particular. I think that's what the stories mean when they suggest that the universe was created by the word of God. God called things forth from the primordial void with God's word, or so the story goes. So it's a very significant thing that Jacob is given a new name in this passage, He is, in a sense, being recreated as a new person. If you've read the full saga of Jacob, you might remember that Jacob got his original name, which means usurper, because he was born hanging onto his brother's heel as if he was trying to get out ahead of him. And obviously, Jacob continued to live out his name's meaning by appropriating his brother's birthright and his blessing, still trying to get out in front of him. Even in exile, working for his uncle Laban, Jacob was still something of a con man, using some less-than-above-board strategies for enlarging his share of the livestock. But here, at the river, Jacob finally meets his match, literally and struggles with him, and emerges with both a limp and a new name, Israel, the name that will come to represent the people of God, the people God has chosen to live out God's dream of a just world. Jacob is given a new identity as Israel. Maybe because of that ancestral research I mentioned, looking into my English and Welsh ancestors who came to this country as early, some of them, as 1611, All of this in this passage is making me think about whiteness, about the name, the identity of whiteness that is, on the one hand, a well-kept secret. We're not supposed to talk about it. 
it's the default. It doesn't need to be named. There's a great little exercise that UU theologian Tandeka would give to her students. She would ask them to name the whiteness of every white person they mentioned. So they would say things like, my white husband, and my white boss, Carl, and my white friend, Julie. And they were supposed to do that for a week, but most of them couldn't even do it for a day because it would make them and everyone they talked to really uncomfortable and often angry. Whiteness is not supposed to be mentioned. White people are not taught to think of ourselves as white. We are led to believe that other people have something called race, but we do not. Whiteness is the unmarked marker. And yet the identity of whiteness is a thing. It wasn't always. It hasn't always existed. It was invented, named in this country with the Virginia slave codes. It was invented as a way of getting European indentured servants and other poor white people to identify more with their wealthy European and European-descended masters and bosses than they did with the African and African-descended people and indigenous people who had worked alongside them. And it did that, whiteness did that, by offering them some privileges to distinguish them. If this is a new idea for you, you can check out the resources I've added at the bottom of the transcript of this episode. So before this, there were English or Dutch or French people, but there were no white people. Those English or Dutch or French or Irish or Welsh people were given a new name, not by God, but by the desire of wealth to protect and propagate itself. And they accepted that new name in order to have access to some of that wealth, or at least the fantasy of it. They traded their ethnicity for access. They traded their ethnicity and so much more, connection to their ancestors, to their homelands, to their spirituality, to their bodies, and to their communities, in exchange for power and privileges. Like Jacob, we have left our people and our land behind in order to live into our name of usurper. I think we're taught not to notice whiteness because to notice it might be to wrestle with it, to wrestle with the grief of all those losses. It might mean to question the bargain we have made. And yet, honestly, I think we do notice our white identity. Let's be honest, we do identify with it. I remember when I was first getting close to my very first black friend many years ago, when I was new to thinking about racism at all. And sometimes she would say things about white people, totally accurate and justified things. And I would find myself wanting to defend them, to defend us. Because, of course, on one level, I did know I was white, and she was talking about me. And so I find myself wondering about the name of whiteness as another name for usurper, another word for someone who steals their brother's birthright and blessing. Of course, this is unfair and inaccurate. Jacob was not white. None of these founding fathers of the faith were, and it's important that we remember that. 
But I can't help but wonder if we who are white, we who have usurped so much, if we could be renamed. If God or someone, some powerful stranger with whom we wrestle, could rename us. If we could be transformed out of whiteness and our violent identification with it. I remember a black pastor friend of mine, Brian K. Woodson, preaching a sermon one time on how he hoped there would be no white people in heaven, by which he meant, of course, no more whiteness, no more white identity on the basis of which people would be afforded privileges. Dare we hope, along with him, that there will be no white people in heaven, that we will stop violently defending a name that we dare not speak? Or maybe the question is more accurately phrased like this. Can white people be saved? I don't know. Certainly, there is no way in our current system to shed the privileges that come with our whiteness. Not unless we dismantle white supremacy every last bit of it. We're going to have to wrestle with ourselves and with the systems, stripping away our false protections facing the brother whose birthright and blessing we have stolen, making repair in whatever ways we can. What happens for Jacob, the usurper, on the way to meet his brother is that he is given a name that becomes plural. He is renamed Israel, which becomes not just his name, but the name of an entire people, an alternative community dedicated to seeking after God's justice for everyone. Jacob is stripped of his individual name and given the name of an interdependent community. And this doesn't happen without injury to him. Let's turn there now. It's so interesting to me that no one wins or loses the wrestling match. Did you notice that? Here's what it says again. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. So they wrestled to a draw, and then morning comes. I said earlier that it's not clear who is going to win in this wrestling match between white people and our consciences, but maybe the point is exactly that this is not a win-lose scenario. Certainly it seems as if a lot of white people in this country feel that they have something to lose as we move toward racial justice. I think that is why Black Lives Matter is so contentious, because some of us white folks hear it as meaning white lives don't matter, black lives do, when what it actually means is something like black lives matter, and when that is made real, white lives will also matter more, because the devaluing of any life devalues all life. The divide-and-conquer strategy that created whiteness and blackness in this country was explicitly designed to serve racial capitalism, which renders all of life a commodity, 
a resource to be used in the generation of wealth. Remember that the invention of white supremacy on Turtle Island was a response to collective uprisings among enslaved Africans alongside poor white people and sometimes enslaved indigenous people rising up together to declare that their lives were worth more than their servitude to white wealth. All white people have so much to gain in terms of humanity through ensuring that black lives matter, all black lives. As Adrienne Marie Brown often says, when black queer women have access to pleasure in an ongoing way, then everyone's pleasure will be ensured. The truth is that there had always been enough for Jacob and Esau in God's provision. There was no need for Jacob to usurp Esau's blessing. The brothers each had destinies to pursue, and God intended to use each of them to found a whole nation of people, Rebecca found that out when she was pregnant with the two of them, remember? Jacob did not need to steal his blessing. God already had a blessing in mind specifically for Jacob, the blessing that he gave to him in the passage Jean Jeffress discussed a couple weeks ago. God intends to use all of God's people. But of course, it is also true that white people do have something to lose, at least on the surface of it. We are asking white folks, including ourselves, to take a step back from some kinds of leadership roles. Not from leadership itself, again, God intends to use everyone, but from some of the high-profile, high-status positions that we have occupied in order to make room for others to lead, and in potentially a new direction that might just eliminate those high-profile positions entirely. As Reverend Ann so beautifully pointed out last week, We really need the leadership of Zilpah and Bilhah, the two womb slaves right now. They are the most directly impacted, and so they know what is needed in order for all of us to get free. And that means Jacob might need to step off center stage for a time. So there are losses for white people. It's important to note that Jacob did not get out of his wrestling match unscathed. His opponent touched the socket of Jacob's hip. Not a particularly violent move, it must be said. And Jacob's hip was wrenched. It's not really clear whether the opponent is at fault for this injury, or whether he just touched Jacob in a certain place, and then Jacob moved in some unfortunate but maybe familiar way, and there was wrenching. He found he couldn't move in the same way anymore. Maybe after this encounter with an unknown opponent, who might have been his own conscience, Jacob couldn't move in the old familiar ways anymore. The text says he walked away with a limp. He was, in a sense, disabled. One of my favorite writers and thinkers about disability justice, Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasina, will often say that we misunderstand the word disability, that the prefix prefix dis, which we tend to think means faulty, actually means dissident. So maybe Jacob's limp signifies that he is becoming dissident, becoming alternative, already starting to become the alternative community that God promises to form out of him and his descendants. And hear this, his dissidence 
comes in the form of vulnerability, a limp. What if we are saved into vulnerability? What if the road to freedom requires that we shed all our notions of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, including this weird idea we have that some of us, some of our bodies and minds are just fine, normal, and others of our bodies and minds are abnormal, deformed, or wrong. It's just not true. All of our bodies and minds are unique, vulnerable, and shaped by social conditions beyond our control. When I think about Jacob's limp, I think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about his scolops, the thorn in his side that he has suffered with and that he asks God to remove from him, asks three times, and instead God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul is not relieved of this perceived imperfection, Paul speculates, because God needs him to remain humble so that God can work in and through him. Although I do have to say that Paul has the most boastful way of being humble, but that's for another episode. Anyway, if the future is disabled, if Israel, God's beloved community, walks with a limp, If we are being called by this passage and by the future to let go of our ideas about right and wrong body minds, if all of that is true, it will require us to change how we are living. We will need to reimagine a world with universal access. In other words, a world that works for all different kinds of bodies and minds. We will need to change structures, and we will need to get comfortable asking for help and receiving it. Sit with that for a moment. How easy is it for you to ask for help? And from whom? Just a hint. I have a feeling most of us feel more comfortable to the degree we feel comfortable at all asking for help. Asking for it of those with less social power than us. Care work tends to fall on women and specifically poor women of color. Think about it. I feel as if what I'm seeing in this passage is that God is calling us into shared vulnerability, into mutual care and interdependence, and into the deepest and most tender acceptance of these bodies and minds that some might call imperfect and that we call holy created in the image of a wounded and resurrected Savior. I realize that the manifestation of this kind of deep, interconnected, loving, caring, whole community would require a radical shift in how we spend our time. If we're going to have time to help each other with things like getting out of bed or into bed or onto or off of the toilet or with transcribing audio for those who can't hear well, or with doing image descriptions for those who can't see well, we're going to have to rebuild our lives with more time for relationship and maybe less time for, I don't know, capitalism? Friends, we are being called right now to wrestle for a blessing deeper and more beautiful and more tender than most of us have ever imagined. 
we are being called to wrestle for a new name, one that means nothing less than the fully accessible, collaborative, deeply relational, fully just community of God. That wrestling means we're going to have to strip away all our insulation, all our false protections. It means we are going to have to confront our demons, those parts of ourselves that have been so traumatized by the brutality of this world that we compulsively commit harm again and again. It means we are going to have to face the siblings whose birthright and blessing we have stolen, making repair in whatever ways we can. We will not emerge unscathed. We will have to walk a different way, humbled, but not defeated. And then together, we will go limping into freedom land. Amen. going to wrestle our way to a more beautiful future. Clearly, we have some work ahead of us, some wrestling. But the good news is that you don't have to wrestle alone. The future is an interdependent community. So let's do this work together. There are a couple different options for how you might do that this week. If you feel called, this might be a good time to do some reflecting on the traumas in your own life and how those are connected to larger social forces such as war, enslavement, wealth extraction, homophobia, misogyny, ableism, and fat phobia. How have you been impacted by these things? Can you get together with a few trusted people and do this exploration together, looking at those places of overlap and divergence in your stories? This is deep, vulnerable work. So go gently, but do let it move you forward into collective struggle to end the forces that keep us traumatized and traumatizing. A great way to engage that collective struggle and your second call to action for this week is to join the Surge Abolition Actions apps, which will be taking place every Wednesday between now and August 26th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Join people all across the country in making calls and taking other action steps to support getting the feds out of Portland and other cities, defunding police and ICE, releasing prisoners from COVID-saturated prisons, and supporting other people of color-led calls for collective liberation. To join, look for the post on the Showing Up for Racial Justice Facebook page or visit bit.ly backslash abolition actions app. That's bit.ly backslash abolition actions app to register. I also encourage you to study up on disability justice in preparation for the interdependent future for which I believe we are destined. Some great places to start are the books Skin, Tooth, and Bone, A Disability Justice Primer, and Care Work. If you are planning mobilizations, there's a great list of accessibility suggestions on the Sins Invalid blog. I'll post the link in the transcript. 
That's what I've got for you this week, folks. Thank you for joining us. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Transcripts of this podcast are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. You can read more from me at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from Seth Wispaway. We are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by that name in this podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Maxwell Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.